It's been a little while since I've been up here, and I know there's some new faces, so I wanted to introduce myself. My name's Matt, and uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to meet you afterwards. Um, when I first moved here six years ago, now a little over six years, I was really excited to get outside and start building stuff. Some of you know that I enjoy building things. They don't always work, but I enjoy the process. I think before we even unpacked, I was outside putting a swing set together, and I was surprised to find out how easy it was to dig in the soil here. I was, I was elated that it took me just a few minutes to get down several feet to put the posts in, put the swing set together, kids start swinging, and I find out that there's a consequence to the fact that it is so easy to dig through the soil here. Having moved from North Texas, where even just getting a few inches into that dark clay, uh, I, I was not familiar with, with the concept of sand and uh, sandy soil. And it, it was such an obvious life metaphor, right? That, that uh, sand, easy and quick, but uh, lousy foundation. Uh, so much so that throughout scripture, the idea and the concept of sand and stone is seen over and over. Uh, and and the, probably the high point of that is, is Jesus' parable in Matthew 7. Now, we're going to be starting something today, uh, a three-week series called On Sand and Stone. And, and it's going to require a little bit more jumping around the Bible than, than we've been doing in, in Daniel. Um, but I hope as you follow me through, you'll see uh, this concept clearly played out. Uh, but the parable of the man that builds his house on the sand and the stone is, is a well-known one. And it's, it's one that screams at us when we think of this whole experiential concept of sand and stone. I think that's why Jesus uses it, because he knew everyone in his audience was going to understand what he was talking about. So if you could open up with Matthew 7, or open up to Matthew 7 with me as we start this morning, because this parable is really the filter of which we are going to examine uh, the rest of, of the message that we're, we're going to be looking at today. And it, Jesus shares this parable at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so he is just finished relating really what it looks like to love God and love one another in very specific detail in, in various areas of our life. And so to conclude it, he says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it." Now, as I read this, I, I notice a few things. First of all, there are two constants. A house is built and wind blows. The question is one of sand or stone. The question is one of foundation. And I think as we read through scripture and as we look at Jesus calls us to follow him, those same two constants are true. A life is going to be lived. Troubles will come. But the question remains of one of foundation, of sand or stone. And so as I think about that and I think everyone that is listening to his parable thinks, well, of course you wouldn't build your house on sand. Everyone knows that. So then why does this hypothetical person do it? 
why would the foolish person build his house on sand knowing full well it would not have be a good, uh, be a good foundation for his structure? And I, I think the answer is also just as obvious. It's easier. It's faster. And I do it every day. Every day when God leads me, I have a decision. Okay, today am I going to trust God and build on him? Or am I going to take the easier route and just trust myself, trust the situation, trust that maybe, just maybe this time the sand will hold up? Maybe it's the, you know, the, the words that, that I don't want to say or the, the situation I don't want to confront, or the sin I want to ignore, it's just easier to just kind of avoid what, what Jesus has led me to do. But it always leads to an unstable foundation. And I have these uh, stones and sand up here that will play a part in the next few weeks as, as we look at this concept. But we're going to be running a, a case study on the life of Peter through all of this, because Peter is an excellent example of a life who constantly was struggling with that balance of, am I going to build my life on the stones of Christ, or am I going to build my life on the sand? Is it going to be easier? Now, we first meet Peter in John, and you don't necessarily have to flip over there. I'll have it up on the screen for you. But John 1:42, first time we meet Peter is when Jesus first meets Peter. And Peter's brother Andrew brings him to Jesus. And the first thing Jesus does is changes his name. Now, I would suggest of all the things that we are told to copy about Jesus, maybe this isn't one of them, that you don't need to be walking around changing people's names. Uh, when I first met Chris, I didn't say, you're Chris, but you shall be called Scott. Now, most people don't take to that real well. But you'll notice he, he, he says, your name is Simon. You shall be Cephas. That's the Aramaic version of Peter. The Greek word is Petros. Many of us are familiar with this concept that it literally means stone or rock. Think about the implications of that. Now, at that point, Peter had no idea what Jesus was doing. Because Peter, or at that time, Simon, rough around the edges, shifting like sand, easily stirred up, probably was in conflict with someone at any given time. And he starts hearing all this stuff about Jesus, possibly the Messiah. His brother Andrew's all excited about him. He goes to meet him, and the first thing he hears is, I'm changing your name. Now, I imagine hardly any of this soaked in, but later the implication started to arise as you think about the short list of people that God renamed. Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. These were pillars of the faith. So that alone should probably make us stop and go, now what, what was he trying to do? And in each of those situations, the name change was used as a way to communicate what God was trying to turn that person into. Jacob especially, as you see a life transformation happen. But also, naming something, it implies possession, it implies ownership. You see that Jesus was immediately communicating something to Peter, of I am going to separate you out, I, I, I'm, I want to possess you for a greater purpose than what you are living right now. This is seen when he says, 
follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You are living a life that is one of chaos and, and you, you just don't, you can't find solid footing. Follow me, build your house on the rock and I will make you fishers of men. You shall become Peter, you shall become a stone, steadfast. See, ultimately what he was communicating was a life change trajectory. He was calling Simon to a better future. But life change doesn't happen like a light switch, right? Life change isn't a light switch. You see, Peter was one that had difficulty trusting Jesus. He so much wanted to impress him at times, lead others at times. He wanted to be a part of something big. But so often he would choose to build his house on the sand and he would sink. Peter is, is the story of Peter is one where we, we start in John 1 and from there we see this, the, I guess, relatable brokenness. I don't know. I, I just, when I read Peter, I see myself reflected in his life. You see one moment of courageous words and actions and then the very next moment, cowardice. In one moment, there's confession and adoration of Christ. In the next moment, there's correction and rebuke. And I feel like that is echoed so much in my life. I don't know about yours. Maybe I'm the only one that finds that it seems like I have to go moment to moment with this whole discipleship thing. That in one, one moment, I have my eyes on Jesus and I'm following him. In the next moment, I'm tripped up or I'm distracted. Peter is just so relatable in that sense. And, it, and it's... It echoes the idea that this, when we decide to follow after Jesus, that this is a lifetime process. It's not just flick, flipping on a switch and suddenly I'm, a, I'm seeing things differently and, and I act differently. You know, and in fact, one of the most common questions I get from someone that receives Jesus and we go through the process of forgiveness of sins is the next day they come back and say, yeah, but I sinned again. What happened? I thought that problem was solved. Yeah, the consequences of sin has been solved in the person of Jesus on the cross. You now have a hope that you didn't have before, but you still have a brokenness that you did have before. And as you live this life, we are called to build our house on the rock. And so Peter calls us to follow after him in that same way. In fact, years later, if the story starts in John 1, it, it kind of ends in his epistles, his letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And so if, if we're going to have a pairing, that's kind of the, this, this series, the next three weeks, a, a, a pairing of verses, it would be John 1, 42 and 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. And I'm going to have those up on the screen where we see what Jesus called Peter out to, Peter then calls us to where he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up in a spiritual house. Peter is calling us to become Peter's stones. And we go from an ex-fisherman who is rash and, and, and often trips up in his own words and is overconfident to a wise 
much more spiritually mature person writing first and second Peter from a vantage point of what he has learned from his failures, what he's learned from redemption. And he wants to echo those back to us. And he calls us to become living stones, to live our lives as stones on the stone. In fact, there's a lot of evidence out there that that was a messianic title, the stone or the rock which comes from a lot of the prophets and from the Psalms where a lot of the messianic prophecies would call this coming Messiah, our rock that we could build upon. But there's a thing when you're building with stone, it requires two things, requires time and what I want to call righteous violence, time and righteous violence. Now the time part seems obvious, right? It was a lot harder to pile these rocks up than it was to pour a bag of sand into a bowl. We've kind of covered that already. Sand is real easy. My kids can build a sand castle uh, pretty quickly. It's easy to just fill a bucket and dump it over. It's also just as quick for the kid down the way to come over and step on it or the waves to come and, and erase it. So it requires more time, which we've already kind of covered. But what do I mean by righteous violence? Well, if you've ever watched a stonemason, the tools that they have are not fine instruments generally. They are blunt tools. They're hammers and chisels. Yeah, they'll rough the edges sometimes with a small instrument. But for the most part, there's a lot of elbow grease going in to knock off those corners. And and when a stone needs to fit in a wall in a precise place, that stonemason will work at it and work at it until it fits right in. I'm always amazed looking at some of those ancient buildings where they were able to take with just simple hand tools, these massive stones and smooth them out to the point that you would think this had to be a machine. But that was righteous violence being done to that stone. In the same way, when Jesus calls us to build our house on him to become living stones, We are entering into a situation where we offer our hearts to him and ask this question. It's the question that Peter asked all the time. And it's a question we ask, God, can I trust you? Because you're about to take this heart and you're going to do some righteous violence to it. You're going to take a hammer out, a chisel out. You're going to form that thing. You're going to knock off the rough edges. And as he is building a spiritual house with these living stones, there is a place for each and every one of us. But the place where he has for me, sometimes my heart doesn't fit yet. And over time, as he walks us through situation after situation and brings in community and relationship and others to speak into our lives and conflict and and difficulty and trials and tribulations and temptation and all the things that form us, those are hammers and chisels, breaking off those edges and finding those creases and, and getting our heart exactly to fit that place that he has for you in the kingdom of God. But every single time that I offer up my heart for him to form, I am asking, can I trust you with this? Can I trust you? This concept I think is most clearly shown in one of Peter's most famous stories of successes and failures. It's found in Matthew 14. And I would ask you to turn over there with me. And we're just going to look at part of it. Today, but this is an excellent example of moment by moment success and failure. If you remember the story, the disciples and Jesus had been serving all day. They were tired. The disciples were worn out. 
and he says, fine, you know, they were probably whining. It's, I just think of it's like taking all my kids somewhere and it's hot all day and they've been walking and, and they just want to sit down and have ice cream or something. And so I think he just says, just get in the boat, go across the lake. Now, later that night, they see a person walking on the water. And since people can't do that, they automatically assume some other impossibility. It must be a ghost. I don't know why we do that. We, that's impossible, so it must be a ghost. Well, that's impossible. Uh, so Jesus gets close and says, fear not, it's me. Well, what does Peter do? Peter, the one who wants to either prove that he's there, he's arrived, or he wants to show the rest of the guys in the boat that he's got this thing figured out, calls out to Jesus and says, if that's you, call me out. Allow me to have that same experience. I want to walk on water. So, I mean, Peter's the only guy outside of Jesus that has literally walked on water. That's a huge success. You put that on your resume. <laughs> so he steps out of the boat and he starts walking. And that's where I want to look at that moment. I want to look at the moment of transition in verse 30. It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. That makes me think of the house, right? There's two constants. A house is going to be built and wind is going to blow. It's just a question of sand and stone that remains. And as he's walking, he sees the wind. In other words, the effects of it, the waves coming up and he becomes afraid and beginning to sink. And I've always wondered, is that like a slow sink, like jello? Is it kind of like he's, he's kind of starting to go down or was it fast and now he's underwater? I, I don't know what it is, but clearly it wasn't working as well as he had planned. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus was asking him a question. He's saying, well, it's not so much a question as a statement, a challenge. Trust the one who changed your name. In that moment, Peter steps out of the boat. But understand that when he did that, the wind was already blowing. The wind was blowing in the boat. And he had the faith to call out to Jesus, call me, call me out or give me the ability to walk on water. And in, in faith and trust, he begins to do it. But as soon as he sees the wind, as soon as he sees the waves, he begins to doubt. He begins to sink and fear overcomes him. And when fear overcomes us, we stop trusting. And in that moment, he's asking Jesus, can I trust you? And Jesus is saying, trust the one who changed your name. And, and although only at two times, and, and next week or the week after, we're going to look at the other time, only two times do we see where Jesus brings up the fact that he did change his name, I believe that would have been something that would have uh, been communicated on a regular basis with Peter. If not with words, with his eyes. And I can just picture that. Because if we have a record of all the times that Peter maybe did something out of, you know, sand instead of stone, I would imagine there's a lot more that we don't know about because it's always true about stories like this. In fact, it's, it's amazing to me uh, when I was preparing for this and thinking about the, this next three weeks and what we're going to be doing, I, I actually went through and, and wrote on a whiteboard all the places in the four gospels where Peter is mentioned or where he says something, he's, he's part of the story. And he is all over the place in all four gospels. Clearly, 
The writers of scripture and the Holy Spirit are saying Peter's life is one that future generations need to be aware of. And, and in fact, his stories of his failures and his struggles like this one are, are copied throughout all four gospels. There's, there's kind of this, this thing where out of, out of all of the disciples, God was like, Peter, he's the one. We're going to watch him. We're going to see what happens. We're going to see what I can do with someone that so clearly doesn't know what's going on. We're going to see what I can do with someone that thinks too much of himself and thinks that he can get ahead of me, that, that is always putting his foot in his mouth. Because uh, all the rest of us go, yeah, that's, that's me. I, I sometimes think Jesus can't use me because I'm doing those same things. I go from one moment of, of just miraculous faith the wind's blowing and everything, and, and he's willing to step out of the boat. To in the midst of those waves, looking around and completely forgetting to trust Jesus. We can relate to that. That's, that's that relatable brokenness concept. But Jesus is calling him, trust the one who changed your name. Now, in this story, there are literal waves, but for you and I, very few times in our life are the waves and the wind literal, right? They come in other forms. And so I want to look at one other story in Peter's life, and it's a few years later, and we find it in Acts chapter 10. And so if you could move, move with me over to Acts chapter 10, like I said, we're going to be uh, because Peter's life, just his story extends through all the gospels and acts and then Galatians and then, and then first and second Peter, we're kind of moving across time. And in, in Acts chapter 10, it's early in the, in the history of the church and Peter is hungry. And if you remember the story, he has a vision. He, he goes up on a roof and he's praying. It's lunchtime. He hasn't eaten yet. And so God uses the opportunity to, to talk to his hunger to communicate a much bigger issue. And so he sees a vision of this sheet that drops down, which just really seems odd, but I can, I can understand that. I had vivid dreams sometimes, and then someone tries to ask me about them, and I can't explain them. I just, I just like, well, there was this thing and stuff, and we went over here. So this is probably a pretty good description, given, given my experience. But a sheet drops down, and all kinds of weird animals jump on, and God says, eat them. And Peter says, no, I'm a good Jewish person, I don't eat that kind of food that's unclean. And that happens three times. And finally, God says, don't call unclean what I have called clean. Now, in, in, in one sense, he is communicating the old covenant has been fulfilled. Jesus had, had become a new covenant. But in another sense, he's using the food concept and the dietary laws of the Old Testament to communicate a problem that was being transferred from the Jewish leadership to the Christian leadership. And that was one of prejudice of Gentiles. And at the same moment that he's seeing this vision, God was working in a guy named Cornelius, and, and he was a, a Roman soldier and a centurion, and he showed up and rang his doorbell. Now, that would have been an example of all these animals getting on a sheet and telling you to eat it to have a Roman centurion come into your house. And at the end of it, Peter makes this proclamation, Acts 10, verse 34 says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him does what is right and does what is right is acceptable to him. So when it says opened his mouth, that was kind of a revelatory comment. He, he, it was clicking for him. 
The Holy Spirit was working inside him. He was fulfilling the calling that Jesus had put in his life to be a leader in the church, to feed his sheep. And that meant not just some of them. And they were kind of ignoring that calling to go out to all the nations. And so he carries this vision to the rest of the church leadership. And they, they stir on that for a while. Well, in the midst of this, as we know in the story of Acts, Paul is going out on his first missionary journey, and he's seeing Gentiles come to Christ all over the place. Well, there was a group of, of leaders within the church in Jerusalem that did not like, found this to be bad news. And, and they wanted to say, no, wait, this, it's fine, you're going out and preaching to these Gentiles, but here's, here's a list of things they need to do in order to become acceptable to us. And so we jump a few chapters over to Acts 15. And we're going to see the outcome, really, of all of this happening, of Gentiles becoming Christians, of Peter's proclamation. And we're going to see this debate going on in, in Acts 15, verse 7. It says, and there had been much debate. So Paul had, uh, was in Antioch, and he, he was, a uh, church was growing there. And he decides that we need to go back to Jerusalem and really figure out what this church is going to look like. What, how are Jews and Gentiles going to come together on this? And so they decide to have what we call Jerusalem Council now. Now, so they get together and they have a debate. Now, I, I find it interesting, the timing of this, because the word debate carries so much more to us now after last week. And if anything, if you watched that and you thought this is total chaos, I would say what Peter, or, you know, what is described in the book of Acts here, where it says there was much debate, probably just that just looked like a little disagreement in the line at Kroger or something. It was, this was yelling at each other, no doubt. This was long drawn out days, weeks. And, and there's something we need to understand as, as, as we read this account of the early church. And we look at the church today, and anytime there's a problem or a conflict in the church, we say, man, we've lost our way. And I want to say, no, this is where we started. <laughs> this, is, this is what it looks like to have a church full of broken people. And understand, this wasn't an argument over the, the you know, color we're going to paint the hall. This was, this was literal prejudice. This was deep-seated Jewish prejudice of decades of saying, although God set us aside to be a light for the nations, we are actually going to shut the door on the nations. And, and that was seeping into the church in that first generation that God had to kind of come in and, and redirect. So if there's a debate, that means there is a whole group of Christians on one side that is for this policy of, of requiring Gentiles to essentially become Jews first through ceremony, like circumcision and dietary laws and uh, just legalistic teaching and heresy. That, that tells me that, guess what? You know, as believers, we are working together to, to, to live this life of sand and stone, to build our houses, and we're all broken. And we all at different times choose sand. It was much easier to just say, you know what, let's just kind of ignore the Gentiles and keep doing what we're doing than to actually look at our hearts and examine the fact that maybe I really do view myself better than them. Maybe I really don't think God could use them. Now, that seems like a crazy concept to a room full of Gentile Christians, right? And we think, well, that seems odd. How could that be, even be a debate? Well, this was not the end of that debate. 
If you're a student of church history, you know that conflict has arisen throughout the last 2,000 years. And, and ones that come to mind that are very similar to this would be the late 1700s, early 1800s in the life of William Carey. If you remember, God was leading him to go reach the Asian continent for Christ. And the church did not want to do it. And the leadership of most of the European churches and American churches just said, you know, if God wants to reach them, he'll do it on his own. There was a deep-seated prejudice against what they call the heathens. That we, we can't, that's not our job. We shouldn't do that. Fast forward a little bit more in the, the church during the civil rights movement. There was just as many Christians on the side of keeping segregation in place. See, this is a hard issue. This is a, uh, you know, the, the consistent thing being my life is going to be built up. Troubles are going to come. Am I going to build on sand or stone? And so this debate happens in verse 7. And after there was much debate, Peter stood up. And again, you get the same thing as, as Acts 10, this idea of Peter asserting leadership. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the, of the gospel and believe. So he's referring to a few things. I think he's referring to the Great Commission. I think he's referring mainly, though, to that vision we just saw that he communicated and said, God said this, we are to preach to the Gentiles. Notice he says, by my mouth. Now, I, I think that's another example of, of Peter trying really hard to show his leadership, but that's also going to set him up for, for failure later. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That's a d definition of hypocrisy. Of telling people that you lead to do something that you yourself are unwilling or unable to do. And that's what Jesus called the Pharisees out for. So this J Jerusalem council was guilty of the very things that Jesus was calling the Jewish leadership out for. So you can imagine why Jesus kind of intervened here and kind of led them in this direction. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will, instead of presenting legalistic rules that are in requirements, we should simply be preaching the gospel and offering grace to these Gentiles because we've seen the Holy Spirit work in their lives just as he has in ours. So they thought over that a little bit more, and it says that they essentially reached a compromise. Now, this is an excellent example of Peter's good leadership in that moment. But the moment changes, right? and then the wind picks up, and the waves pick up. And here's the thing. If Jesus calls you to walk against the wind, you're going to feel its effects. And soon we read, and we're not exactly sure how much past this, Peter takes a trip to Antioch, maybe to go see how things are going. Maybe he wanted to get on the action of what Paul was doing there, seeing all these people come to Christ. But as he 
left Jerusalem, he left calm waters to go out into the waves. And he, he was leaving the boat once again. And at this point in Peter's story, we don't read about it from Peter's point of view. We read about it from Paul's point of view. And we're, we're going to slide on over to the book of Galatians for this one. This is in Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to give you a moment to go over there. Now, I've, I've been able to put these little bookmarks in, so I'm a little faster. But Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul is going to share with us this story. And it's a story that so clearly emphasizes this idea of am I going to build my house on sand because it's a lot easier or am I going to choose stone? But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James. Now that doesn't say sent from James. So this would have been that group that was on the other side of the debate because compromise changes policy, but it doesn't always change hearts. And he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. This sounds more like a junior high lunchroom than it does church leadership. He was eating with the uncool kids till the cool kids showed up, and he backed away. But here's his leadership, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's calling him out for his hypocrisy. He was just fine hanging out with them and living life together, and, and this says eating, it was, it was what they called a love feast back then. It was essentially a combination of, of communion and worship time where they broke bread together. This was a church function until, the, as Paul called them, the Judaizers, the circumcision party showed up and then he backed away. And now his leadership, still in effect, was leading even the likes of Barnabas that was known to be one that reached across every aisle to disciple and encourage. I want to end with Peter's teaching on this because I think that as Paul is confronting Peter, I have a feeling he was thinking of the wind and the waves in that moment when he stepped out of the boat. And as he's sinking and, and, and looking up at Jesus... And he's asking, can I trust you? I think when he writes years later, he picks up his pen and he's writing to believers. And he says this going, finishing up where kind of where we started in, in first Peter chapter two, verse one, he says this. So put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now that is a list we would normally find when describing people that are not Christ followers. But I think that is a list that arises when the fear of the wind and the waves overcomes our trust in Jesus. When we choose to build on sand instead of stone. And then we cannot be built up as living stones because our fear overcomes us and we fall into things like hypocrisy. And as we jump down to verse 9, 
Remember the verse four and five of the living stones concept is kind of our theme verse wrapped around that. We see verse nine where he says, but you are a chosen race. So, so put off those things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Instead, realize who you are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What does it mean when Jesus changes your name? He's communicating possession. So in the same way that Jesus called out to Peter and said, trust the one who changed your name, I believe Jesus calls out to us, trust the one who changed your name. When Jesus calls you to follow him, trust the one who changed your name. When Jesus calls you to confront a sin struggle in your life, when Jesus calls you to disciple your family, when Jesus calls you to confront Conflict when Jesus calls you to preach the gospel to people that don't want to hear it. Trust the one that changed your name. Now, as you notice, we do have stones and a bowl of sand. Some of these things are better for writing a name on. And in a second, uh, the worship team's going to come on up in there. And in fact, I want to invite them up. Now they can come on up and we're going we're gonna to sing a couple of songs. And I would invite you at some point... And you can even wait till after the service. But over the next two Sundays, we're going to be inviting you to pick a rock. You're going to take it home. And you're going to talk to God about it. You're going to meditate on it. And ask him, what is this new name he's giving you? This new name that is meant to draw you out from the fear. When we ask, can I trust you, God? What's that thing that he is calling you to trust him in? Maybe that's the thing you write on the stone. Maybe it's the, 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 the new name that he calls you to, to deal with that. Maybe it's contentment. Maybe it's gratefulness. Maybe it's faith. Whatever it is, take your time. Find your rock, right? Some of these rocks are more useful for bigger words, just so you know. But you're going to take it home. You're going to find a Sharpie of some sort, and you're going to take an opportunity to write that over the next couple weeks. And then on our third Sunday, on the 18th, when we come back together to, to conclude this series, I would invite you to bring it in with you because we're going to have an opportunity for you to stand, uh, stand and, and share your name that you wrote down on your stone. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for these earthy concepts that are just so easy for us to contemplate. Uh, yet they're connected to such difficult things. The concept of trust is a daily one, one that we entertain all the time. And I pray as we know that, that two things are, are constant, we're going to live a life and troubles are going to come, that as the question